Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. ABTB Buddies, the Larry Hankin interview was epic, and it was epically long because it needed to be. I've decided to make it a two-parter so you don't have to devote two and a half hours to listening this week. Part two will be out next week. This is a very, very good one. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Larry Hankin, and you know him from his roles as Mr. Heckles on Friends, Doobie from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Joe from Breaking Bad and El Camino, and so many more great characters. I mean, the guy has done so much. But did you know that he got his start in stand-up comedy, and that's why I'm talking to him. And he opened for people like Woody Allen and Miles Davis, and he also started the iconic improv group, the committee with his friends. And we're going to learn all that and more from Larry Hank. ABTB buddies, the Larry Hankin interview was epic and it was epically long because it needed to be. I've decided to make it a two-parter so you don't have to devote two and a half hours to listening this week. Part two will be out next week. This is a very, very good one. Thanks for listening. I can't believe it. I've got Larry Hankin today. Larry, how you doing? I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, I just had to shut the shut the window. There's fire engines going on. Oh. <laughs> Maybe my house is my my apartment is, uh. is burning down. I don't know. Well, we don't want yeah. that to happen. Yeah, so no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm just a broadcast anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm uh, obviously I told you I'm stoked to have you on the show. This is a, a big honor for me, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you. It's my, my pleasure, actually. I, I like talking. So. Good, good. Well, I like listening, so we're going to get along real well. So <laughs> I, I want to talk about um, the fact of, I mean, you you went to school to be in industrial design. And, yes, I did. And you obviously steered away from that fairly quickly. Can you tell me what the path was right out of college? Okay. Uh, okay. So I graduated, um, and as a as, as an industrial designer, and I, I was offered a job at General Motors designing future cars uh, for, for a lot of money, man. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, to start get out of college and start it like I don't know. Seventy-five thousand or a hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow! But I, I was a good student. I mean, I really um, I have a little OCD, so I, I get into things. Uh-huh. You know? And I'm also dyslexic, so I get into things. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, my best friend in college, Syracuse University, was Carl Gottlieb. I don't know if your fans know who Carl Gottlieb is, but he wrote all the Jaws movies, or at least three of them. Yeah. He he co-wrote co- the jerk too, and he yeah, yeah. he's written a lot of movies and yeah. and, and uh, but he was my best friend, and he said you know so I get this call from General Motors you know and uh, I had gone to see them they had flown me and a couple other top students uh-huh. out to Detroit gave us a tour and I just have I have no censor I. I <laughs> I have no boundaries, man. Uh, I mean, verbally. Right. Uh, so I just speak my mind. And anything that I didn't like, I told them, well, that's kind of crappy. And they didn't like that at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I noticed that. You know, like I would pick up something and I go, what is it? It was like a modern car somebody had made. You know, you know, uh-huh. Yeah. Or a desk. You know, we were taking a tour. And to pick it up and. And he goes, oh, you, you really like that? You know, look, and I said, I said, no, actually, it looks ridiculous. <laughs> and he goes, that's the head of the department made that one. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, he tried to be, you know, but I could see it. Mm-hmm. 
it registered. <laughs> it's going nowhere. I, you know, but I don't, I see, here's the thing. I don't care. Uh-huh. I mean, there's certain things I do care about, but if I don't care about it, then I don't care. Right. But right. if I do care, man, I care. Right. So I didn't care about him or his head of the department's model or anything. And then, and then he said something, which is really cool. He said, all right, well, now we're going to see the CEO's um, lunchroom. I, I don't know, cafeteria. Uh-huh. The CEO's cafeteria. So he takes us in there. And it's beautiful. It's like, it's like an upscale New York restaurant, man. Really cool. That impressed me. I, re- I really was impressed. So I said to him, you know, there was like four or five of us students. I said, wow, man, we're going to eat here? He said, oh, no, no, no. This is where the CEOs eat. You don't eat here. I said, oh, what the fuck are you showing it to us for? <laughs> So that, that got to him. <laughs> and, but I didn't, you know, I, I kind of knew I wasn't going to be here. I, I, I kind of somehow, I didn't know where I was going, but this wasn't my life that I had thought. I was a good kid and I fulfilled my obligations to my parents by going to college and graduating uh-huh. with honors. Right. And I thought, okay, that's it. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. I'll it's- see you. You know, and so I went home, and then, and then luckily, Carl Gottlieb, who was my friend, called me, and he said, hey, man, I want to go to the village. I want to be a writer. Uh, he had been in the journalism school. Uh-huh. I had been in the industrial design school. And so he said, yeah, let's go to Greenwichville. And I said, man, I'm there. Let's let's do it. Uh-huh. So we bought a car for uh, $150, an old car. I lived in on Long Island. Mm-hmm. and drive up to New York and we got this uh, well anyway that was college okay so we went to Greenwich Village and we got this apartment for uh, very 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 cheap it was a sixth floor walk up and uh, or fifth floor fifth floor walk up mm. with no windows it was a, a one window opened onto an atrium <laughs> of a hole in the middle of a building yeah which faced the brick wall. Uh-huh. So we were, we were there. But that's my, my start. And uh, I didn't have a job now. I mean, he had a job. He had already written letters ahead, mm-hmm. newspapers in New York. You know, neighborhood newspapers, not New York Times or anything right. like that. Just little neighborhood papers. But he had a job. And he was reviewing movies, which he wanted to write movies. So he was right in the ballpark. Right. He was right. I had no idea, man. I didn't care. I, I was free. I didn't have my parents to. I had I had fulfilled all my obligations to my parents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was free, man. And the only job I could get that I wanted, because I wanted I wanted my days to be free. I mean, <laughs> that was the plan. I my days are going to be free, and I'll just kind of. I don't know, maybe draw or I don't know. And so I got a job as a, um, the only job I could get actually was a job as a um, swabbing, clear, swabbing a a bar after 2 a.m. From 2 a.m. to to 6 Mm a.m. when the chef came in, it's like a bar and grill. In Greenwich Village, in the neighborhood, just a walk away from where we lived. So that's what I was doing. I, I, um, for about two or three weeks, um, and I was stealing food from the from the grill from the restaurant part of the bar, uh, and uh, I would always wear a raincoat to work. <laughs> and I got that from like the Marx Brothers, you know, yeah. from uh, the Harpo. Yeah, you know, with the spoons, he was always stealing spoons and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's where I got the idea. I thought, okay, I wear a raincoat, um, and then uh, I would go to the restaurant part and then i would like a like a rasher of bacon you know and i would stick it in my back thing uh-huh. and then i would wait by the door see they locked me in i i never understood that but they locked i i guess so nobody could break in but i couldn't get out yeah they locked me outside so i had to be there from two until six and then the chef the morning chef would come in he would open the door and i would go out but i would always wait right by the door right right but and uh-huh. as soon as he opened the door i would sl- I didn't want to talk to him or he would bulge or anything like that. I was starving. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and then Carl would uh, steal food for me. Uh, when, when he went to review movies, you know, I guess they still do it. But then, if you because he was reviewing movies, the same movies that the uh, New York Times guys were uh-huh. reviewing and the other guys, the, the big ones in all the neighborhoods. And, they go, and what they did is they served you wine and the frozen shrimp, you know, the, the cold shrimp bowls uh-huh. and with the dip. <laughs> So the wine, you know, they get you like little fed, little liquor, and then you go in and you mellow and you see the movie. You like the movie better. So, yeah. And they also had, which was interesting because it counted, was in those days, they actually served uh, real linen napkins, N- not not paper napkins, uh-huh. man. So, so he would take these linen napkins every time. He at least go to three a week. Take a linen napkin. Take a handful of cold shrimp, put it in a napkin, wrap it up, put it in his pocket, and he'd take it home for me to eat. That uh-huh. was my, so he was feeding me. <laughs> and, and he was paying, you know, if I missed a payment on the rent, he would kind of shut, you know. Yeah. So um, he would pay, pay it for me. Uh, so I would save the linen napkins. I, I thought that was really neat. Yeah. And after about, I don't know, a month or two, they were just – I would hang them all over. They would use linen, white linen napkins. And then finally one day he came in and said, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, wh- what have I done? You know, why Why all of a sudden you're not going to take shrimp from me? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, because my suit is smelling like fish. That's why. <laughs> and, yeah, he only had one suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... That was the end of that. And so I had nothing to do during the day, which was what my plan was, but I didn't realize the reality of that. Yeah. Which is, man, it's a long day if you have nothing to do. Uh I mean, it's because you can hang out with this guy and that guy, but they have things to do. So, right. But there was open mic nights. In Greenwich Village, and that's where we were, and that's where we lived, and that's where I worked at night. So I would go right before going to the bar to clean up the, the duckboards and stuff. If I, if I never see another peanut shell, I will be very happy. <laughs> um, and uh, so I would go to the open mic nights because they were free, and you could just sit there for you know a couple, an hour or two just listening to comedians and folk singers. Mm coffee and and i thought you know i was funny in high school i won funniest in high school two years in a row mm-hmm. so i thought i'm funny and i i can i can do that sure <laughs> so i get up on stage and i was god awful man I, I really was uh it, it's not the same funny is not the same as hanging with your friends yeah as getting up on a stage and people want to laugh and uh-huh. that's what they're there for but, and here's the great but about, and I just, to this day, I love open mic nights because you you only have three to five minutes back. And I, sometimes you would get 10 if, if you were going to close right. and you had a good shot the other night, mm. let you go a little longer, but three to five minutes. So people will listen to you for three to five minutes. Even if, even if you're bad, you know, the, you, they knew you're going to be off and maybe the next guy will be really funny or it'll be a good folk singer. Mm. Well, they they had patience. If I was bad, nobody booed or said get off the stage. They they just sit there, mm-hmm. you know, until you were finished. And you get off, you know, next person. So it was really cool, and and I was really because just just talking and being funny in, in talk and hanging out. You just picking out stuff that you wanted, but on stage you have to have specific stuff. You yeah. Ramble until they left. <laughs> three minutes, man, which was even more pressure. So you're less funny. Mm-hmm. It was funny when you wrote it. It's not funny now. Yeah. So, but thank God because I do. I I am a funny person. I mean, sooner or later, it start you. You start to get the the gist of it. And so after six months of doing open mic nights, I was opening for Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. So cool, man. Yeah. And it was all because of open mic nights, the patience of the people, you know, in the beginning yeah. to sit there and not, 
so I didn't have any guff. You know? Yeah. What was no, your material like back then when you got good enough to open for Woody? That, I, there's only one joke I remember. Okay. It's not, it's not funny, uh-huh. but to see how to tell you how bad I was. <laughs> um, uh, the, the material that I had was like uh, I was sleeping last night and uh, a mosquito was buzzing around the room, which, which does happen, uh-huh. you know. And I know I couldn't go to sleep, so it was buzzing and buzzing. So what I did was I convinced the mosquito that I was a psychiatrist, and I asked him to lay down on the couch so I could psychiatry him. And then when he laid down on the on the couch, I slammed the couch up against the ceiling and crushed it. <laughs> and that was where I was at. Uh-huh. That was the, the kind of humor. Ridiculous. Trying to be ridiculous and funny, but... If ridiculous isn't funny, it's just stupid. Yeah. Well, that's actually funny. And what? That's actually funny. And that non sequitur stuff is good. You know, know, 400 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I hit somebody who thinks it's funny. Well, they didn't. That's all I can say. Okay. (laughs) Funny or not. Yeah. They sat there and waited for the next guy or folks. Now, you talk, you talk about your, your, um, time on stage did you actually like write stuff out before you went up never, or did you never it, never, it, ever did i ever write anything and i didn't know because i didn't know how to write a joke mm-hmm. i didn't know how to write a setup and a punchline because all of my stuff when i was funny in high school and and just with anybody or, or just with carl the day before i got on stage and wasn't funny uh-huh. we would just i i would make the humor out of what was going on out of the reality. I would, right. you know, mm-hmm. out of what you were saying or what was going on. And you just put things together in your mind and you say it, you know, uh-huh. or you find the mistake or the loophole or the irony uh-huh. in what's going on. But to write it, you have to create an event. And I couldn't do it. I, I, I may, it was the OCD. It was the dyslexia. Mm-hmm. It was the ADHD. Uh, it was a lot of things I couldn't, uh, but even when I was opening for Woody Allen and, and Miles Davis and the love and spoonful, and I was doing arena events and, uh, I still never wrote anything. Mm. What I did was the, uh, the way that I made my material, I was a star, a stand up comedy star for at least two to three years. Mm-hmm. I was, top of my forum opening for really star acts um, is that uh, I never wrote anything. What I would do is you would have your hunks, you know, you get on stage and you blah, 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 and you go, Oh, I got 10 minutes of really cool stuff. All right. So if I knew I had 10 minutes, I eventually I would break it out and tell you, I'd have to open for a star. You'd have to have 30 minutes, mm-hmm. but you know, 10 minutes, what I developed is, okay, I got 10 minutes. So I, I would say, I would get up on stage and I discovered this, that an audience will, I guess it was open mic nights that turned me on to this. Mm-hmm. An audience will listen to you for approximately two minutes, even if you're not funny. Be, they're just, they're just sizing you up. They'll listen to you. Maybe he's going to say something interesting within a minute or two. Mm-hmm. They'll have, they have patience for two minutes. After that, you better pay off because then it's forget it. You know, then it boo, get off the stage. Where's the Kingston trio? Uh-huh. So there's about a definite line. And I, so what I would do is I would talk about my day for two minutes. I, I had it down in my head, some sort of timing thing. Uh-huh. I would just get up and just, oh, you know, flow. Is whatever, and if it wasn't funny, bing, you just go into your first joke. You know, you the new, the the, the good stuff, the ten minutes. Mm. And sometimes, if I was funny, just off the top of my head for three to four minutes, you just keep going. You you, you just play the role. You mm. know, you just keep going. And then when they stop laughing, and you see, all right, they're losing interest. This new stuff that I'm just doing is is not cutting it anymore. You go into your ten minutes, right? And so now. I don't know if all comedians have this, but I do. And I, I, I'm sure other comedians do. You have a photographic memory for laughs. In huh. other words, if I'm, if I'm talking to you uh, in a show 
t- talking to the audience the first three minutes, first two minutes, first minute. Blah, 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 no less, blah, blah, blah. Funny laugh, blah, funny laugh, blah, 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 funny laugh. Okay, and then they stop laughing. I'm going into my 10 minutes, boom. The next night, for whatever reason, I will only remember those three laughs. So I put them, I would start with uh, you know, a minute of just blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. And then I would pull in those three laughs. Or, or what I thought were the three laughs. Yeah. What I remembered of the night before's opening monologue when I got laughs mm-hmm. that would just come to me and they would, it would be perfectly formed from last night. I had a photo memory for, Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, so I, I had a photographic memory for, uh, I got, I got to just, I'm going to throw this away. Okay. Uh, I had a photographic memory for less and I think all comedians do have. It. So I never wrote, I never had to write anything because of that little, you know, moving belt of, of, mm. of informational laughter. I would just pick out the left. And I did that for, for years. N- never writing anything, but that formula of two to three minutes, remembering the uh, the thing from last night, putting it in, moving it up, and just on that conveyor belt. And then I would save the you know the funniest stuff for laugh, laughs, and, mm-hmm. and get off. Now, as I became more and more proficient at this, I started to bring in critical thinking, which I never even thought I had. <laughs> uh, but the critical thinking was that's when the cops started to show up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the critical thinking was where Lenny Bruce uh-huh. met the law. Yeah. You start talking about religion and uh, drugs and the law. And I thought, all oh, that was funny yeah. to me. Yeah. And it got bigger laughs. Interestingly enough, the more outlaw you get, the bigger laughs you get. Yeah. Until you're opening for the Kingston Trio, which is not my crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and then guys come at you with a beer bottle upside down in your hand across the dance floor because you're in a nightclub opening for the Kingston Trio. And he's just saying to you as he comes towards you, get the fuck off the stage and bring on the Kingston Trio. <laughs> Whoa! Oh, new. Whoa! You just turned the corner, Larry. Did you make fun of Baptists or what? You what? Did you make fun of Baptists or what? (laughs) No, I was talking about uh, genitalia. Okay, and uh, and religion, and uh, you know, Baptists. No, naked. I was talking about that God. Uh God did it. The word. The word God. I had a bit where I had a microphone. And I just took a little person. And so, oh, you know, here's the thing about religion, which I don't understand, you know. And he asked, so oh, here's this little guy, you know. And I put him on the top of the mic stand. And I, and I would talk to him. I go, hey, man, how you doing? Wow, that's uh, that's really unique. I made you. That's really uh-huh. cool. But what's that between your legs? Boom. Guy uh-huh. with a, hey, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Get the fuck off. Yes, he did say fuck. Get the fuck off the stage and we're going to Kingston Trio. So I'm talking about a little naked guy. You know, what's between your legs? Get the fuck off the stage, brother. And I, so I got off the stage because this guy was, a, as Lenny said, a starker. Yeah. <laughs> With a beer bottle upside down in his hand. And I just, okay, man, you got the stage. Wow. And then, uh, you know, so I was fired. Yeah. But I, I, before I was fired, I quit. Yeah. I mean, because I'm, I, that's the one thing that probably saved my, my sanity is I don't care if I'm fired. I've been homeless in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was, I was cleaning duck boards before, you know, I was opening for the Kingston trio mm-hmm. and man, you know, my roommate was stealing food for me. What the fuck you mean? You know? Yeah. Get off the stage. Yeah. Oh, you're fired. <laughs> not, not get off the stage. I'm getting off the stage. Right. You're gonna, I don't want that. But if he says you're fired, it's fine, man. I've been there. I've done this. Yeah. It, no, no biggie. Were you so, fi- were you physical when you were on stage? 
did you did you like act out when you were doing? Yeah, no, I would act out the stories or the characters. Uh-huh. Like you know, get off the stage and I would hold the beer. But, but no, yeah. I I wasn't physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because because that mic is your key. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Too far away from that mic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you're so, you have a. Um, I mean, you're extremely tall, uh, especially for. I mean, you were born in forty and you're six four, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm six, five and I was born in 64 and I'm in like the 99th percentile. So you're in like the 99.97th percentile of oh, height. Wow. Did, did that, did your height play a factor in how yeah. crowds responded to you? No, no, except my manager did. Uh-huh. Um, I, I was discovered, I was discovered by Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. And that's, that's a fact. Because uh, I was in the village, and he was in the village, and he would come see me. I didn't know this until he told me. Um, but he would come and see me all the time. And he brought me to his manager. Uh, uh, man, I, I got a blank on it now. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, man, that's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten his name. Yeah. He brought me to his manager. Uh-huh. And it'll uh, come to me later. Uh, so he brought me to the manager. And he asked me, to, and, he, and he asked his manager to come and see me. He said, I want you to handle this guy. This guy's fucking funny, man. Mm-hmm. So he brought me down. And then so I went to his office. Uh, and no, he, uh, what did he do? Oh, he invited me up to Bearsville to hang. Mm-hmm. So I was with the band and, and, and Dylan and, and, and that whole, there's a, a all those people. And one day, Robbie Robertson come to me and said, I, I'm, we're doing a movie, and Bob said you could write a movie. I don't know where that came from. I never told uh-huh. him. I, no, I, I guess he assumed, you know, oh, he's funny. Well, write a movie, you can write. You know, uh, so that's funny with geniuses, because they can do things that other people can't. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody can do that. Yeah. So, <laughs> So uh, Robbie called me, you know, at home and said, hey, you know, Bob said you can write a movie. Why don't you write? And I said, yes, because I always say yes. You know, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I wrote this uh, kind of ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde type of uh, treatment. Uh-huh. You know, it all rhymed for like I know, four pages of this God who comes to Earth. And I just. Uh-huh. It was cool. Yeah. But that's not a movie. Yeah. <laughs> writing is writing. That's, that's what I thought. So anyway, one day Robbie comes to my house and he says, Hey, you know, what's going on with the, with the writing? I mean, it's you know, kind of long. Uh, you got anything? And I said, yeah, I finished it. Here it is. So I gave him, I don't know, five, six pages. I said, it's a treatment, you know, uh-huh. he said, hey, no, that's fine. Just, we need a story. So he take and he didn't read it. He just took it and he split. He just showed up at my door, said, "You got the thing?" I go, "Yeah, here." Boom, and he left. Next day, um, he comes to my door again because I had rented a house up there because mm-hmm. because now I he had Warner Brothers who was working with Robbie paid me money to to now do this treatment. So mm-hmm. I had money and I rented a house. He comes to my house the second day. And he says, knock, knock, knock. Oh, Robbie, hi. I said, wow, you only got, wow, you read it already? Yeah, did you really write this? Yeah. Mind if I show it to Bob? Yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and then he just, boom. Okay. I didn't know what was going on. Then the next day, I got another knock on the door. And I opened the door, and there's Bob and the band. <laughs> Bob said, did you write this? I go, yeah, what's going on? He said, get in the car. So we all piled in this station wagon, band, Darren <laughs> and me, and we go uh, to uh, his manager's house. And he wakes his manager up. It's like 11 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning. Not bad, you know. Uh-huh. But they wake him up, the manager. They wake him. He comes down in his pajamas and bathrobe, and we're, we're in the kitchen. And he goes, whoa, whoa, what's going on? 
He says, Larry just wrote this. You should, you should hire, you should sign him, sign him. He's a funny guy. And he wrote this and he, he needs a manager. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he, he, and Bob hands him this thing, <laughs> this, this writing. And he doesn't look at it. He just takes it in his hand and he goes, uh, and, and I guess in the old said, yeah, he's funny. He's funny. You should sign him. You should sign him. <laughs> and he just, this is the answer to your question. He said, he's too tall to be funny. <laughs> and that kind of put the kibosh on the whole, whole party. That's funny. You yeah. know what to say. I mean, they couldn't say, no, he's not tall. Uh-huh. Then I know, but he's funny. No, he's too, too tall to be funny. Uh-huh. I, so, and then he, he said, I'm going back to bed. And then he just went back to bed. <laughs> so, so they handed the thing back to me and they said, well, and Bob said, oh, he said, well, then how about getting this published in Playboy? He said, and he said, no, I'm going back to bed. Boom. Uh-huh. He said, well, and then Bob says to me, he says, well, that was my shot, man. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that was nice of him. So they drove me back home. And uh, that was the end of that. So I went, I went home. Years later, uh, I met the, the guy who paid me, the guy from Warner Brothers, the producer who paid Robbie to pay me. Uh-huh. Uh, a whole lot of money, thousands of thousands of dollars. Uh-huh. And I saw him at an airport, and I recognized him, and he saw me. So I just went over to him. And as I'm walking over to him, and I hadn't talked to him or seen him since way back, couple of years since that happened you mm-hmm. know, but he knew exactly why i was walking towards him <laughs> before i got to him he said it's okay don't worry about it <laughs> he knew I'm, gonna, I'm sorry man i'm sorry no it's okay don't worry about it we wrote it off <laughs> yeah so yeah being tall i i still i think i knew what finally what he was uh talking about in movies, the shorter you are, the funnier you can be because you can beat up tall, you know, you yeah. can win over tall people. Yeah. Which is what Charlie Chaplin's whole shtick was. Yeah. He was so tiny that he was always a hero. Yeah. You know, you always yeah. get these big fat guys to be, you know, the enemy. Right. So I think that's maybe what, but as far as stand up, no, there's a lot of tall stand up comedians. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there, there certainly is now. And it's funny how, I mean, you've been in movies and TV for a long time. It's funny how you don't understand the height of the people on the screen until I see you come up because it's all relative to you. So, um, everybody else is the same height. Yeah. And, and so everybody's a head shorter than you. And I'm like, okay, so they're all about, you know, five, seven, five, eight. And, and, and there's, Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that until, uh, in the beginning of my career, that did play a big factor. They would say he's too tall for the star he's going to be with. Yeah. He can't be. That was a rule. You can't be taller than the star you're with. Mm-hmm. That was a rule for a long time. It doesn't, it doesn't apply anymore. Mm-hmm. But back when I first started, yeah, he's too tall for the part. Yeah. I couldn't, and I, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. You know, and like, um, uh, there's a, a big time uh, Shane. You know the movie Shane. Yeah. Okay. Gary yeah, the Cooper. Star yeah. of that. Uh, who is that? Who is the star of Gary of Cooper? Shane? No, 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 nope. no. Gary Cooper. It was his, his his father was the head of a studio. Um, Let me see if I can find. Anyway, it. whoever the star of Shane was, the guy who played Shane, he was very short. Mm-hmm. Very short. Now. When movies first started, you, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people in Hollywood know this, that a lot of the stars in the black and white silent movies, definitely. And then when silence started to go black and white, all the stars then in that era were short and had big heads. <laughs> this is true. And that was one of like, he's too tall to be an actor. He's short and got a big head. He can be an actor. Wow. And the reason was for the close-ups. Uh-huh. 
And when you're walking and, and doing like a cowboy, you know, where from your belt to your head, that's mm-hmm. called cowboy. Well, you want to have somebody with a big face. I, <laughs> I, I don't know the real reason, but it's true and it's been published that way. I mean, uh-huh. in other words, it's a, a, a little known but well-documented fact. Yeah. No, no, it doesn't, you know, that all that fell away. Right, right. But for a while, so, I mean, things that you couldn't change had a lot to do with whether you were hired or not. Yeah. Being tall, having a big head, mm. being short, being tiny and funny. <laughs> Weird rules. Weird rules, man. But, yeah, it, it, it comes into play. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the committee and how that started. Well, okay. Um, so I was uh, being pulled off the stage by the police is, is how that started. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was opening for the Kingston Trio. I was doing my God stuff, my genitalia stuff, my legal stuff. And um, I got into the God, the God thing actually with the little guy on the thing. It seems that God and a little guy, I, that, that was what tipped off audiences. You'd get him off the stage, call the police. <laughs> so I was in the middle of my bit. Everything was going great. I was opening for Love and Spoonful. It's a big arena, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Big, big time. And laugh, 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 laugh. And I go, okay, now let's talk about God. Wow, I just felt, you know, about, I don't know, two, three thousand sphincters just shut like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I just kept going, but I, I felt it, man. Mm. It, it, there's a thing you can just feel. And I said, okay, and I'm going to get this little guy and I put him on a thing. No, nothing, silence out there. And I said, oh, what is this little thing between your legs? Boo, get off the stage. Boo, boo, get off the stage. I mean, it's money. Boo. I said, and I, I just was blown away. Okay, Kingston Trio, beer bottle, a starker. I understand that. College students? Yeah. Rock and roll? <laughs> Come on, man. So that's what I said to them. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you're college students. What is a rock and roll show? What are you booing? How could you boo? They shut up for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, me talking to them. Uh-huh. That was cool. Whoa, he's talking to us. <laughs> wow. So I said, you know, so they, they calmed down. They shut up. Very cool. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. Okay. So where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, what do you got between the boo, boo, boo? And they erupted. <laughs> now they started pulling this, the armrests off of the, the seats in this arena, in this uh, auditorium. Uh-huh. The wooden armrests, they pulled them off and were throwing them up on the stage, the first three rows. Oh, no. Get off the stage. Boom, get up. And the loving spoonful off in the. the uh, in the wings there going, no, keep talking, keep talking. Like, what, are you, what are you, crazy, man? I, no, stay out there. They wanted a riot. They wanted publicity. Yeah. So they, they, they kept, a, oh, man, a riot, a real riot. So I'm going, no, no. And I go, wait, wait, stop, stop. And they stopped. I go, no, this is, this is all ridiculous. You know, and they say, uh-huh. So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on with this anyway. No, no. I said, okay. I made a deal with them. That's what stopped them. I said, okay, okay, okay. No more. No more God stuff. I'll do the clean stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, went to, I chose what was clean, uh-huh. what was okay. And I did that. And then they were fine. They, they blah, blah, blah. So about, I went about 10 more minutes. And I started to get the, really the big laughs that you expect and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so when I got this really big laugh, I go, okay, now we're going to talk about God. Well, then they got really angry, but they had no more, you know, armrest to pull off. They had thrown them, they were all littered on the stage. So I said, because they had the lights on, you know, uh-huh. the reason they had the lights on. I see in the back row, no girls ever threw anything. I didn't see any girls throw any. Uh-huh. 
I see in the back row, the guys in the back rows are pulling their armrests off and passing them down. (laughs) (laughs) Here is ammunition. The (laughs) K-Pons come rolling down. And then they're boom, boom. And as they're throwing this and passing the stuff down, I see a phalanx of cops, 10 cops on each wall aisle come marching down up on the stage. And I just stood there, you know, in silence. And they stopped throwing the stuff, Mm -hmm. watching the cops come up. And they just, both of them, not angry. I don't think these cops understood why they were taking this person off the stage. They weren't there for the whole show. Yeah. They just arrived and they said, he's up there now. And they just (laughs) piled in. And there was this one guy on stage. And they had come down when they saw the cops so there's nothing going on and they come up and they just very nicely took me by one arm each a cop each guarded by 18 other cops yeah (laughs) walked me off the stage to the applause of the audience and then they held me back there didn't hold me they just stood by me and i go you know it's empty back there there's nothing going on back there Uh so the other cops split the 18 cops just left. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm standing there with these two guys. I said, what's going on now? And they said, we have to guard you until the love and spoonsful start playing. <laughs> and I go, Why? And they go, well, because you're going to run out there and do it again. <laughs> so we just stood there while the stage crew put up the musical instruments and and then they started to play. And once they started to play, they said, right, bye. Yeah. Like, bye. You know, that was it. And bada, bada, bada. so uh, this is a long story to how I got, but I enjoy, I enjoy these stories. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a great story. <laughs> so I, we, we fly now cause I was with the love and spoonful and those, I was part of their group. Uh-huh. So we, we, we flew together and took buses together. Mm. We're going up to Northwestern University, which is up in Michigan. So we flew up, get on a bus, go to the hotel, get out, check in. And as we're going to the elevators, three men stand between us and the elevators. And these are the three men. A a police captain, a priest in the white collar, the whole shtick, white hair, Uh white collar, and a gentleman in a suit with white hair who turned out to be the dean of Northwestern. Ah. And they say, is there a Larry Hankin in the group? <laughs> so the two managers who were with us, there was four eleven Spoonful, Larry Hankin, and two managers. Okay. The two managers immediately step between the group and the three guys. Mm-hmm. And they say, what is this about? And they say, um, we have uh, we've had a phone call from Washington University from the dean, and they turn to us immediately and they say, and they didn't mention my name. They just pointed like this. They go, I "Want you? To, I want you, gentlemen, to go up to his room." They pointed to me, but they didn't want to say my name so it would identify me. Uh-huh. They're really cool. They said, "Go up to his room, lock the door, don't let anybody in except us." Two. Okay. And we just silently went in, got in, and they just guarded. And, and now in the room, they're the loving spoonful of just like, you, you, you got to do your show, man. You got to do your show. You got to do it, man. But they wanted a, a riot so badly. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you know, after a while, I was thinking, well, man, riot, riot may not be that bad. Yeah. You guys. And I said, well, wait a minute, for me, that's not good. Yeah. No, comedians for riots is not good. Yeah, I think in Lenny Bruce, man, the cops just murdered him. Oh yeah, it's literal. Well, hmm. no, what, what's the opposite? Literally uh, or figuratively? Figuratively, yeah, figuratively. So, so we we stood, and then finally, there's a knock on the door. I know who is it? It's us. Okay, they let us in. All right, we made a deal. Here's the deal. Okay, they don't want you to go on. They said to me, they don't want the comedian to go on. Definitely, they say. We go. Why? Why? I said. The dean of Washington University called the police here and said that the Love and Spoonful had a filthy-mouthed comedian opening for them. In those days, a filthy-mouthed comedian was like the death warrant. Yeah. 
that was Bruce. That was a filthy mouth comedian, and I was a filthy mouth comedian. I, I, so they said, you got to go on, man. You got to go on. And they said, well, here's the deal. The deal is he can go on. If he doesn't do any filthy mouth material, the minute he does any kind of filthy mouth material, the shutting out the lights and the concert is off. <laughs> so it's up to you guys. We're going to dinner. And then they split. <laughs> so we're discussing now. You got to do it. You know, said, yeah, but it's, you know, it's good for you, but not for me. But I said, well, fuck it, man. I'm going to do my, my ad. Let's see what happens. You uh-huh. know, you know, so I went out and I just did verbatim the act I was going to do for Washington University. Nothing. They, they just laughed. And it was nothing <laughs> happened. You know, no, no riot. No, they, they, they only laughed. <laughs> what a bitch. <laughs> you know? So that was that. But I called my manager, who by, by now was Woody Allen's manager, mm. Jeff Collins. And they say, hey, Jack, man, I can't go through this. I mean, I'm a middle class Jewish kid. I'm not I'm not prepared for this cop thing and this bullshit that's going on. It's not fun anymore. Mm. You know, I, I was doing it for the fun, not for the money. Mm. I, you know, I'm going to travel. I was doing it for the I love making people laugh. And, and it's not how, you know. So he said, why don't you join Second City? And then you own the theater and you talk about the same thing Lenny Bruce talks about. But they throw the people out, not the actors out. Mm. And I go, okay. So I auditioned for Second City uh, with um, Robin Williams, as wow. a matter of strange cool. coincidence. I, you know, yeah. I don't know. So uh, I auditioned for Second City and I got in. And then I was there for two months. Three months, and we had too many people in the company. It was nine people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only works for five or six people because it's all improv, so nobody knows right. when are they're not going to go on. And there's nine people. Sometimes people don't go on at all, you know. So that, so they they let us go. Me and and uh, Jack Burns, they let us go. And uh, I was just couch surfing in Chicago with no income. For about two weeks, and then a guy named Alan Meyerson, who I auditioned for Second City in New York, came through and said, you know, where is there a guy comes? I was in the bar. I hadn't worked, but I would hang around the theater. They were the only people I knew mm. in Chicago. So I'd go to the theater every night and just hang out until uh, I had, you know, went back to my couch, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> whose couch I was sleeping on. And a guy comes in and says, is there a Larry Hankin down here? I go, yeah, me, what? He goes, there's a car outside. They want to talk to you. I go, now what? (laughs) I go out. It's a snowstorm outside. Chicago. Mm -hmm. And there's a car out there. It's a station wagon. It's packed. It's got trunks and all kinds of bullshit piled on top. And the car is jam-packed with people and uh, two kids. So like seven people at least, minimum, in the car. Basically, it was Alan Meyerson, the director of the committee, his wife, three or four other actors and two kids and all their stuff on the top. And they say, hop in. What do you mean hop in? I mean, I knew them from the audition, but where are you going? We're going to San Francisco. We're going to start the committee. We want want you. Uh (laughs) And I go, no way, man. I mean, you got a theater? No. Well, uh, yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to raise money out there. No, look, send me a ticket. I'm going back to New York. That's the only home I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so send me a, a plane ticket. I'm not going. Goodbye. And I went back inside, and they pulled away. And then sure enough, two weeks later, I got a plane ticket. So I just flew out because I had nothing going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I flew out to the committee. And in the two weeks, I guess they had called ahead and had done all this pre-work before they even drove to Chicago for me. And they had a, 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 a theater being started. They were building, they had hollowed out a, a, a Chinese uh, a supermarket, huh. a small one, mm. a mart, but enough for a theater, big enough for a theater, 500 seats. Yeah. And they were building it. So we rehearsed in this uh, theater and also with the uh, Mime Troupe, which was a famous 
company in San Francisco already. Mm -hmm. And we shared a rehearsal space. And that's how the committee started with, uh, and the rule was in the beginning, once the theater was built, we rehearsed for two months, two or three months, and the theater was finished. And we opened a theater, advertised. And the rule was, one, the first rule was don't quit your day gig. I didn't have a day gig, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anybody who had a day gig, don't quit it. We, you know, we don't know what's going on. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, the second thing was, um, if there was more people in the audience than was on stage, we didn't have to do a show. So we did that for a while. There's only only four people in the audience. Yeah, <laughs> well, we have six people in the, uh, in the in the show, so we don't have to go on. Yay! Yeah. We still get it. Yay! <laughs> It was like $150 a week, I think we were getting. Yeah. So that went on for a while. And then one day, man, and I'll never forget this. This is one of my big days of my life. We were inside rehearsing uh, the afternoon of a, like a Saturday night show. We were rehearsing a couple of new things. So we were inside until uh, the box office opened. So we were in like some from, from 3 till 6.30 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So right before that we broke up to, you know, go have dinner or something like that, you got a half hour before the show starts, whatever. I, I said, I'm going to go outside for a second just before they broke it up. So it's about 6.30. I go outside and there is a line around the block. Wow. I'm not talking about around the corner. I'm saying the end of the line was here and the beginning of the line was here. Yeah. <laughs> around the block. I mean, it it blew my mind. I ran across the street just to see the whole thing. It was amazing. And I ran back inside and I got my best friend at the time, Hamilton Camp, of us. He was a folk singer at the time. Gibson and Camp, folk singer, Gibson Mm -hmm. and Camp. Hamilton, come outside, come outside, quick, quick, quick. What, man, what? No, you got to see this, man. And I took him outside and Holy cow, line around. And then we walked the line. We walked <laughs> all the way around the block, just saying hello to people, you know, just all the way around the block. And just, oh, just mind. Uh-huh. And, and from then on, that's, that's all we had. So for, did somebody discover you and the word of mouth got out or what happened to make that happen? Or the committee in particular? Uh, uh, the, the, the committee to fill up that theater. It was just word of mouth, man, because also it was a a Berkeley and, uh, uh, you know, the Berkeley steps and Mavio Savio. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the 60s, man. We were there a couple of months before the 60s exploded. And when it exploded, and I'm talking about exploded, Mm -hmm. we were on the cusp of the the new comedy, Mm -hmm. the new... I mean, it was, it was Nixon. And in other words, everybody was hating everything that was going on, you know, the 60s, the mm-hmm. Vietnam War and everything like that. And we were doing that stuff. And all of a sudden, Mabio Sabio at Berkeley was saying, hey, man, Vietnam is bad. Nixon is bad. This is bad. This is bad. The committee is doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let's go see him. And boom. So the 60s came through the door. Every star in the United States came through our door for the for 10 years. Well, for five years. Easy. From 1960 until 65. And then we just kind of leveled off. And I stayed the whole time. I was there from opening doors to the closing doors. Mm. Ten years. Ten years. The 60s to the 70s. Uh, by 67, we were just getting, you know, crowds and stuff, like a normal theater. You know, we were doing fine. Uh, but it wasn't, we weren't, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the taste of the week, the clothes, the clothing of the week, yeah. the uniform. Yeah. Uh, but in that time, uh, Penny Marshall, like every star in Hollywood was flying up because we were as famous then as Second City. But people in Hollywood who wanted to go to see Second City, that was like a plane flight and a hotel thing. And it was like two, three days. It was a weekend. All right. All right. 
for San Francisco, you could fly up for $35 round trip. You know, fly up in the afternoon, see the show. You could actually sleep in your bed at night if you wanted to get a late flight. Or you just sleep over in a hotel and fly up and fly back the next day, which they did because they then they could see the next day. You know, you fly up late Saturday afternoon, see a show, go to a hotel, then tour San Francisco for half a day and fly back. It was like a little, you know, mini vacation. Mm. So all the stars. So we were known down there and and we were being flown back and forth. I had to come on down to a, a TV sitcom. Mm-hmm. But Penny Marshall was the one who discovered me. She specifically said, get Larry Hankin down here uh, because she was doing Laverne and Shirley. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to, uh, the episode that I was, that she wanted, she wanted me for a specific episode, was uh, Laverne and Shirley were going to their prom. And Laverne, Penny Marshall, wanted there was a dance sequence mm-hmm. and she wanted a physical comedian. And she said, Larry Hankin is a tall, she mentioned <laughs> yeah. tall. She said, he's a tall physical comedian, which I am. So she said, I want to dance with him, you know, get him down. And I wanted that to be so, and then he told me that, you know, so I went down and I, I did the thing. And um, the, the, the rehearsal was really funny. Because we were rehearsing a dance routine. Mm. Now, she's a physical comedian. She really is. Oh, yeah. She's more physical than she is, like, verbal. But TV sitcoms are verbal, so she did that. Right, right. But she wanted to make it physical, you know, like a dips and twirls. And, you know, she, she wanted to make a thing out of it because uh, she thought, well, Larry can do that. Mm. So let, let's do it. So we're rehearsing. And she wanted to do this dip where I dipped her and I dropped her. Now, she knows how to fall. She's really a good physical. She probably could be a stunt person if she ever wanted, uh-huh. you know, back in the day. She could have been a stunt person. So she said, just drop me. So I didn't want to do that because I was afraid I would injure her. You know, I was just looking out for my job and I didn't. I don't know. So I said, well, what about if I dropped you on the couch? In other words, I dipped you by the couch and you fell on it and then I fell on you. See, then then I don't hurt you, but then I can get myself into the joke. Uh-huh. She said, fine. She just wants to be funny. She doesn't care about who does the thing. You uh-huh. know? I mean, she's really great. So we're rehearsing, and all of a sudden, I hear, we hear, hey, what's going on? And um, is that like, well, no, okay. Something else I just spoke about. Um, she said, hey, what's going on? And you look up. And it's the producer, director of the show, uh, um, Marshall, Gary Marshall, Gary, yeah. Yeah. her brother. He says, what's going on? And she says, well, we're rehearsing the dance thing. She says, no, you're not. What's this touchy-feely going on? <laughs> I go, what? And she says, what are you talking about? So this there with the couch thing, he's laying on you. What is this touchy-feely? No, no touchy-feely here. <laughs> and I'm, my mom, no, we're, this is a dance routine. We're, we're rehearsing a dance routine. He says, well, you rehearse the dance routine with no touchy-feely. That's all, okay? You got <laughs> it? And I look at Penny, I go, I mean, it's her idea, you know? Uh-huh. I didn't say that, but I'm looking at her like, what's going on? And she just shrugs and she said to me, he's my older brother. (laughs) It's like family. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we cut, so we cut that. I don't, you know, I mean, the, the crap that you run into, there's no way you can think ahead to that kind of, uh-huh. you know, critical thinking doesn't work in situations like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so uh, that's how I, uh, okay, so I do the show. Mm. Okay. And then I get a call about three days later after it aired. And I got a, I think he was was even before it aired. But three days later, I get a call. Uh, Hi, my name is um, so and so. I'm a, I'm an agent. Do you have an agent? No. 
Uh, I hear you didn't have an agent. That's why I called. Would you like one? Yeah. How about coming in? I go, okay, fine. And so I went in and he, we just talked for, I don't know, two or three minutes. He goes, you want an agent? Yeah. How about me? You're fine. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Boom. And I said, wait a minute. How do you even know that I exist? You know, I just, I, I'm in San Francisco. I just came down here for this little thing. You know? He says, well, what we do is, which I thought was kind of cool. He said, me and my partner, we just, every once in a while, go to production companies. We In person, we don't call. Mm. We go in person and we say, any new interesting people come through, you know, that you uh, auditioned. Any interesting people come through that don't have an, uh, an agent? And they said, yeah, there's a guy, Larry Hankin, tall guy. He was very singing. He's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have an agent. We just called him. He's okay. You know, and then that's how he, so that's how I got into show business. You know, that's how I, and then the money was so good. And that's the trap. The money is so good. You drop your thing. Yeah. I stopped doing stand up. You know, I was making so much money. I didn't have to, mm-hmm. I didn't have to work. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have to tour. Um, I would just wait by the phone and, you know, every two or three weeks, I would get a job or four weeks, you know, and you, you get enough money so that you can save, you know, through the dry times. Uh-huh. So it didn't, they pay you a lot of money, but over a year, it doesn't come to an amount of money, a lot of money at all, because yeah. you're paying rent when you're not working all that time. Yeah. So it's just, you know, an ordinary show. But at least I didn't have to tour, which is kind of, you know, making, because I was alone, mm-hmm. no agent, or, uh, nobody was booking my flights for me or getting the hotels and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's how I, you know, I started doing TV sitcom uh, to my, to my, to I, I think to the detriment of my psyche. It, after a couple of years, it started to depress me. Mm-hmm. Because as I was saying other people's words and, you know, I made my bones by working off the top of my head. Yeah. And I'd been very successful opening for really big acts. You know, I was, I did the playboy circuit, mm-hmm. you know, I, I worked Las Vegas, you know, and then, but, but they're paying you so much money. You think. Yeah. In one lump sum. There you go. Well, I don't have to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was like a vacation for the first year or two. And then you start going, and then sometimes you're standing on a set, and I'm 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 standing on a set, looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm going, what's a grown man like you, Larry, doing, wearing this stuff here? <laughs> what? Why are you saying these words? These are these are not your words. Larry. Mm-hmm. So it starts to, and then finally, but then you know you get something like working with John Houston or. or uh, Bill Hader or um, uh, Larry David or John Houston or, you know, you go, well, it's worth it. Kind of. Wow. I mean, uh, because I I was never in it for the money. I was I was always in it for 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 cool stuff that I thought was cool. Like working with John Houston. I didn't I didn't ask what the what salary was. John Houston. You got to audition for John Houston. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Thinking thinking about uh what you know, obviously the saying other people's lines and working off a script and stuff like that, that was yeah. that was what brought on the depression. But you have um you've gained a uh respect within the industry that don't people give you a little bit of leeway now? Um they let Larry Hankin oh, be yeah. Larry Hankin. Yeah, but in the beginning, they're paying you a lot of money, so you just keep your mouth shut and yeah. do what you what we say. Right. But you're paying me so much money, and then and then, and then the the go to argument is, then don't take the job. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. I mean, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you complaining about? You're saying words you don't like. Why did you take the job? <laughs> because they paid me so much money. Then shut your mouth. And I mean, they don't. It's not that. There's no anger uh-huh. in Hollywood. They, they, that's my anger. They, yeah. That's not theirs. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not. They just say, just, just say the words and and hit your mark. Mm-hmm. They're very nice. They're they're very nice people. Very, uh, very social. 
So how it's does just my, it's just not how I work? Yeah. <laughs> but to answer your question specifically, if I keep the word of either work with the rules and the director or don't take the job. Mm-hmm. So I know I don't like doing saying these words, but I took the job so I know my place. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in front of the camera, <clears throat> I am a, I'm serious. Mm-hmm. This is what I do for a living. Right. Right. So I don't, if the camera is on, I'm a professional person mm-hmm. and there's no getting around that. I mean, I can joke with you all I want right. in these stories, but if there's a camera and they turn it on and they say action, Larry, I, I'm not Larry. I'm yeah. the character and I do what tells the story of the narrative. 